Hi there, I'm Aaron. And I'm AR, and this is the 25th log and the fourth theory on The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Welcome to the Lore Research Lab. Today's thesis, Zonai Collapse and Legacy. What led to the Zonai's downfall and what was their cultural legacy? It's time to deep dive, folks. Oh, it certainly is. This is the ultimate finale. It's so I ultimate. Like have, I feel like there should be like Smash announcement music on that. Like exactly. the Super Smash Bros. theme announcing ultimate finale. I don't know. That's just a feeling I had. Something. But something, you guys yeah. need to be prepared for a lot of information coming your way. Let's get into it. We've covered the general period of prosperity of the Zonai in the previous parts. Boy, were there a lot of previous parts. <laughs> which again lasted around 150 years ish obviously we have no way of knowing that it's just kind of like a general we're just using it as like a placeholder again benchmark placeholder placeholder number exactly like that sounds like a reasonable number for what we think with that period of prosperity you will see why in a second yeah or hear why they interacted with other groups in Hyrule and spread their symbols across Hyrule as well as involving themselves in wild-scale projects like the building of the shrines in the Ren Labyrinth. The building of the shrines, labyrinths, and everything else Sheikah-related kind of would have occurred just before uh, and over this timeline, basically. So this is where things kind of take a turn for the worse. The Zonai were doing well as it pertained to their involvement in Hyrulean initiatives and involving themselves in things in Hyrule, but if we just focus on the group themselves, they aren't faring as well as they planned to. Their population experiences uh, a decline as less Zonai are having children and more of them are aging. So their expansion as a group over this kind of rough 150-ish years time span led to a gradually dying popu population. Essentially, over their, basically like not even just over this time span, but over their entirety of the time in Hyrule, mm -hmm. they spread since out they too arrived. far. Since they arrived, they spread out too far and too fast especially considering they were a dying population when they arrived to Hyrule to begin with. They yes. were all that's left of the Zonai population when they arrived. And then they kind of got caught up in all the excitement that were ha with the things that were happening in Hyrule. Things including the Sheikah technology development. And they spread out too far, they spread out too fast. And we know from the game that each cultural group was responsible for the health and growth of their population and would not rely on another race for help. For example, we know that all the Gerudo are women, so they seek out suitable highly mates to sustain their single-gendered population. We don't think it's necessarily like the Zonai. It's like their fault, for lack of a better word. It's just that this is no. how things worked out. And it's not, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't even say this is the natural course of history. Like, this is not how things were intended to play out. This wasn't some faded destiny for the Zonai for them to die out. It literally just worked out this way. It was like, a matter of circumstances and circumstances. Like, you know how you have had the phrase, like, a miracle is a series of coincidental accidents? accidents. Right. Like, I don't know if that's just a phrase here, but, um... <laughs> but... <laughs> phrase now! <laughs> it's a phrase now! Um, but basically what it means is it's kind of like... This could have played out in so many different ways. Like, it's entirely mm -hmm. possible that, like, they noticed a declining population 
then they banded together to increase their population, but it just turned out that that just didn't happen. And this is kind of why we use 150 years as this placeholder, um, because the Zonai decline was rapid in the grand scheme of things. If you think about it, 150 is only 50 more than 100 years, which is the amount of time that spans between pre-Calamity Hyrule and what we see in the game. So if that's technically not that much time, 100 years compared to this whole other history of Hyrule, 150 is equally short. Um, and if you consider real time, because we've kind of mentioned this before, if you think about how things would play out in real time, traveling between Tiflo the kind of Sheikah tech lab, wherever that is near the Thundra Plateau, and and Farron, that was not an easy journey, especially for a group that was probably, that was mostly composed of people that were aging. So they were either elders or they're just getting older. Their health is not what it used to be. But this also means the Zona have less children to raise to be warriors, suggesting that the structures they intended for their own traditions would kind of, they wouldn't really be used. They wouldn't be able to reap the fruit of their efforts because this we know is a Zonai thing. The labyrinths are Zonai structures, but because it would take a very long time to build all three labyrinths, they probably aren't gonna be able to use them even now. I think it's possible that one or two generations of kids use them, but it's like, it's unlikely that they would have been able to use them as fully as they wanted to or as a unified society in a sense. Exactly. The whole group would have been there, which is probably how they wanted it to play out. You'd have the entire group there to witness who the next warriors would be, their new generation kind of thing. Exactly. But while this steady decline of the Zonai is happening, the Sheikah are busy at work, beginning the development of the Sheikah technology, including runes, the shrines, the nuts of bolts regarded for guardian body composition and the divine beasts. What that means is that they've slightly moved beyond the planning stage now, and they're actually beginning research into this technology okay, to actually start construction. Yeah, construction is, is beginning to happen mm. now. They have the very, tools. very early stages of construction, but construction nonetheless. It's at least happening. Um, but so we know that the we know that uh, there was Zonai stationed at the tech lab, and they were still involved with Sheikah work. So while the population is dying, what did the Zonai at the tech lab? What did they do? Let's talk about that now. Zonai aren't stupid. We might be, but they certainly are not. They have more they than one working one. brain cell. Exactly, and they can speak... I was gonna say English, but... They could probably speak I... multiple languages if you think about it. Yeah, like, they, they are... Or at least write. They can formulate words that make sense. We cannot. Unlike us, <laughs> but they are aware of their dying population. So let's discuss what the Zonai did as this dying group. At this point in time, there's not really anything they can do to stop this decline. So aware that they're really just not going to be around forever, Zonai working with the Sheikah disguise to focus all of their attention on building and designing. Because as we know, this is all in an effort to aid the future hero. What I mean, I would, what? I would just cut in here quickly and say snip 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 but like i think a lot of i think to them like they kind of want to like focus on the hero especially because like they kind of 
embodies their cultural values. We probably discussed this at one point or another already. I think so. But like, yeah, but like they we, want- we think they, they, there was a lot of importance placed on the heroes, so it would make sense for them to focus a lot of their energy and attention on yeah. doing things to the hero. Because the hero exactly. is the embodiment, I guess. Uh, yeah, again, uh, of the things that they value. So, uh, what this means is the life force of the Zonai. They, it's it's just focused on the hero now. So this means their period of expansion and the transference of their culture has more or less come to an end. They've kind of stopped doing that because the labyrinth is probably their biggest project, and we know that they have columns and stuff all around Hyrule. They plan to have their imagery for certain shrines they are still involved like conceptually they're still very much involved with that so we know we're still going to see all of these zonai symbols and structures emerge but they aren't going to transfer any more than that now they've kind of stopped they've realized their own mortality and are now focusing on ensuring that when they die out as a culture their work isn't going to be lost to the passage of time exactly Here's the thing with the Divine Beasts, though. And this is kind of something, if you remember way, 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 way back to the Gerudo episode we did. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about this now. Ago. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about this now. You'll remember what a mess that was, that we had an epiphany in the middle of the episode. Upon, like, talking about that over, like, when we were planning out the next couple of episodes, we had a realization that actually kind of led us down this whole theory path around the zone to begin with. I would actually think that was the moment this started. So the the, the moment we decided to build a narrative around the Zonai, or at least construct one of our own. Because again, we know that people elsewhere on the internet are constructing their own ideas of the Zonai and there's, um, they have their own theories. But I think once we had this epiphany, that is when it started. That is when our exactly. Zonai timeline started. So we actually have to build a lot of our theories With the around, this, around the Divine Beast. That's around actually a big part this of this. this idea we had, this realization. This and is I mean, part of it also came from the desi- guidebook. We're going to get there. Yes, we're going to get there. But the Sheikah designed this creature-like machines, and they would have required not just manpower, but a certain design that would distinctly represent the em- element it would come to symbolize, such as water or fire. If it was decided that the Guardians were sentient walking robots acting as foot soldiers, the Divine Beasts were going to be spectacular. They would be intentionally huge. Yes. We know in current Hei to Hei Hyrule that Varuta is an elephant, Varudani is a salamander, Varnaboris is a camel, and Var Meadow is a bird. Here's a question. Which of these animals are animals known to Hyruleans in any point of the timeline that we've ever seen, ever? So, regardless of the timeline, the only correct han- like answers here is the salamander and the bird. That's it. We never see anything resembling an elephant or a camel in current day Hyrule. It is possible that camels were once around in the desert, potentially, but even that has a low likelihood. Um, but the overall terrain of Hyrule also does not lend itself very well to the natural habitat of an elephant. You don't have, because elephants themselves are typically in like really warm areas as well, whether it be like India or the savanna. Um, but Hyrule doesn't really have a version of that. I mean, Farron maybe, but it's never really hot enough to no, and a it, rainforest. Yeah, it's, it's and elephants aren't rainforest uh, mammals. They're, that's not their exact habitat. So, I don't know, I'm just saying like, 
if you if you're gonna like the closest thing you would find to any sort of environment. Yeah, it would probably be fair in like southern high wool, but even then it's hard to argue that point. So it's not a savanna, it's not the jungles of India. It just doesn't it's just not that type of environment. Yeah, so yeah, so let's get back to the the Sheikah and the Zonai now. So um, we, we, the Sheikah and the Zonai are not the only ones working on the kind of development of Sheikah technology per se, but as it comes to the divine beast, there was, I think, more of like a joint cultural, um, like, uh, not, I, sorry, not cultural. There was a joint effort for multiple cultures in the creation of the divine beast, or at least their conceptualization. So there is a good chance the Rito were involved because they would offer, um, uh, their, uh, the bird, that symbol, um, and equally, there's also a very good chance the Gerudo were involved because that ties back into the um, the Va prefix. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll talk. We'll talk about this a little bit more um, because Va, yeah, Va appears to be a Gerudo word. Let's just get more in detail to how maybe other groups were involved in the conceptualization of the divine beasts. So. The Garuda definitely had a role in naming the Divine Beast. It is also possible that the Rito offered the design of a bird. I mean, it's that that it's a bird. The bird themselves, it makes sense. The Sheikah probably contacted the Zora and the Gorons at some point, because although the Zora and the Gorons don't really appear in the Zonai timeline, they would have definitely interacted with other races like the Hylians and the Sheikah. So the Zora and the Gerudo both have ancient histories tracing back to women of great renown, namely Naburu and Ruto. So in one way or another, the Zora would have had a role in naming the water-based divine beast Va Ruta. Va Naboris for Ruto. Obviously. Va Naboris would have been Gerudo named because following the example of the uh, the Zora, Naburu, Naboris. And like just like them actually, the Gorons would have named um their salamander-based one, because we know we got we got lizards in this game, and that is salamander-like. Yeah. So we know that that's a there's a high possibility to that. They would have named their divine beast Valradania in honor of their ancient Goron leader, the Runia. What does it say? Like an add in addition to the salamander point, like that also makes sense because you often find like fire-resistant. Li- yeah, you find, find fireproof the- lizards, exactly. Right, which are a lot of the time in the Elden region. So it makes sense, right? Oh, you top have- there. Fireproof lizards, and you have Darunia. Like that, clear cut, easy. Yeah. Meadow is a uniquely Rito name, so it appears highly likely that the races associated with each divine beast had a role in naming them, right? So you have the Zora named Ruto. Naboris. The. Pardon? Vanaboris. Yeah, you have Vanaboris named by the Ruto. You have Rudania named by the Gorons, and then you have. Um, meadow named by the Rito and then each race would eventually select a member to pilot their respective divine beasts. Exactly. But what of their design? The Zonai may not have named them, but we know the Zonai are quite artistic. It's clear from their many different ruins. Yes. The sense of visualizing creatures and designing things like the distinct dragon head is a skill. And not one many other races in Hyrule possess, actually. Yes. So the Zonai function like concept artists and would have conceptualized the divine beasts. Remember, elephants and camels don't appear native to Hyrule, no matter how far back throughout the games, other games we go. Even if you try to geologically trace it back, the zoology, it just doesn't seem to match up. It doesn't work. 
But as we know, the Zonai did not originate in Hyrule. That's really important. Yes. Hyrule, for all these other races, Hyrule has been their home for centuries. Yes. It's highly likely. Yes. They have been there. They have been with this zoology. However, elephants and camels don't appear in Hyrule, but it's highly possible that they would appear in other lands that the Zonai possibly could have traveled through. Yes. Their exposure to a land before Hyrule and their fascination with animal symbols comes in really handy here. See, it all starts to make sense. And this is a big reason why we almost position the origin of this entire meta-theory around the Zonai as it pertains to the, the divine beast, we position the divine beast as the origin for building up the Zonai narrative because in order for an elephant and a camel to be designed, it would have to come from somewhere else, meaning the Zonai had to come from somewhere else if we think the Zonai had a role in their design. So this was a big point for us. And this all means to say that, yes, the constituent races of, I- of Hyrule had a role in the creation of Uh, the divine beasts, i.e. naming them, but the Zonite actually gave them material form. They gave them the look that we see. That's what we think. Um, The divine beasts look the way they do thanks to the Sheikah, but also greatly in part to the Zonite. Right. Um, And and it's like, it's like, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Now that they know what things are going to look like, we can see them maybe materialize, right? Right. Um... And I would add another point that we were looking through the guidebook and a lot of the actual developers notes for the actual game said uh, like the, the divine beasts are kind of meant to look like they were made from someone who had never seen one of those creatures before. Yes. And if we take into account that the Sheikah and actually other than the Zonite, no one else had actually seen them before. Right. Like that could be taken quite literally. The Zonite, the Zonite had tried to draw it out as best as they could and then the Sheikah were working off of designs that the Zonai had made for them from memory, right? Exactly. And considering that it's probably been a good while since they were last living on whatever previous land that they were, their their memory of um, animals like uh, um, elephants or camels potentially would have been maybe a little bit foggy because they don't have an example of that in Hyrule. Because if you keep getting physical reminders of something, there's a better chance you'll remember what your association is with that. You don't got the physical reminder of an elephant and camel in Hyrule. It's kind of hard to remember what they would look like. Exactly. But what this also means for the timeline is that the Sheikah tech is finally materializing. We know that once they start planning what they're going to look like, you know that they've reached a point where this tech is actually viable for use. Yes. And we're now starting to see the structure slowly emerge. Any riddles and such required for entering the shrines are also being developed. And I mean, it's possible the Zonai were involved in that too what yes. was setting up the Lomai Labyrinths for example exactly. like clearly they've got a good head for puzzles and challenges on their shoulders so this period of developing the Divine Beast shows the concurrent emergence of shrines in Hyrule so, so like the Sheikah tech is emerging in Hyrule generally at yes. this point in time we're slowly starting to see the physical emergence of it if you will construction is, is coming along now if you will um, so as, as you remember, the Zonai are dying out and they know it. The places they call their homes, namely Tiflo, the speculative Zonai temple, because don't forget, there is only one shrine at Hyrule Castle. If the Zonai temple was the original location there, it's very possible that the shrine was built at this time. Um, so there's the Tif- there's Tiflo, the speculative Zonai temple, Farin, um, and the labyrinths are 
kind of at this point now, they are offered to house shrines. So we didn't mention that you actually find shrines as part of like the Zonai tradition of, of that warrior education. We didn't mention that shrines were necessarily a part of that process and this is why. Um, they offered these locations. The Zonai offered these locations to house shrines. Even in current day Hyrule, it is not easy to find many of the shrines in Farron as most of them are concealed or require solving a riddle, such as an ancient song for the Kukanata shrine. Um, the labyrinths would have also have been great locations for shrines to test the hero. So the Zonai tradition is now in service to Hyrule's future hero. Um, building plans then begin for shrines in these Zonai associated locations. It's kind of admirable and poetic in some ways that the Zonai are putting all their energy into what they value and are even to an extent giving up their homes for something they think is really important, which is courage. And the future. There's an important distinction to be made here. Some shrines already have Zonai iconography on them and they were probably involved in the creating of those puzzles in the first place, especially the most the more complicated ones. But now Zonai locations are being actively converted into testing grounds for the future hero. They contributed to some shrines, as we've said, but also sacrificed their home for the existence of others. The Zonai work together with the other races to allow the technology to manifest as they die out. Okay, so this will come across as kind of abrupt, but as the construction of the Divine Beasts begins, I either kind of getting past the concept stage and building is kind of happening, um, and of course the building of shrines and stuff across Hyrule, the Zonai actually die out as a culture. So they experienced many, they, sorry, they experienced collapse many years beforehand, way back when, when we explained how they had to leave their original home in order to find a new home. This time the collapse here is permanent. So this section is kind of discussing how they, I guess, kind of went down. Um, I'm gonna use a, a, a historical example here um, from, uh, this is a comparison of the early Greeks in the late Bronze Age around, I'd say 1600 BCE. Early Greeks are known to be a division between two known groups in the Mediterranean, the Minoans and the Mycenaeans. So around this year, 1600 BCE, the Mediterranean saw the fall of the Minoans and the mysterious rise of the Mycenaeans. The Minoans are not necessarily considered to be the first Greeks, kind of like maybe proto-Greeks, but the Mycenaeans are. So why compare the Zonai to the Greeks? It is theor theorized among, sorry, I'm choking again. It is theorized among many scholars that uh, the Mycenaeans contributed to the downfall of the, Minu the Minoans, assu assuming control of the Greek peninsula over time. I mentioned the Greeks because the Zonai might have been in a similar position as the Minoans, that being that due to some uh, external force, the population experienced a fall, but it's not like everyone died at once. It's not like the entire cultural group just went poof, gone. Um, if the population lacks adults who are able to procreate or just lack a certain number of people, it is impossible for the group to be considered a, dis a distinct group anymore because they can't they can't continue repopulating. You need to have a certain number of people in order to repopulate, and once you lose that number, it's hard to be considered that distinct group. Right. So what this means is that there were still Zonai around, like they hadn't all just gone poof one day. Right. As no, no poof. No poof. There is no poof in this story. 
Um, but there's not enough zonai to repopulate the race. The group, the group itself is considered extinct, but there are still zonai individuals. This event occurs around the time full-fledged full, Sheikatek emerges. So the majority of the zonai that were around to learn about the legend of the hero, live in Tiflo, etc., probably died out. What's left of them are probably those of the Sheikah, so there's the next generation of zonai living at Tiflo and Farron. The potential Zonai temple population would have relocated or died out right there. But in any case, the Zonai are still spread out and are more or less considered extinct. Um, another possibility can, to consider is that the surviving, the surviving Zonai are among the slightly younger Zonai who are not around for that original era of travel. As the race die out, it is worth mentioning that Zonai activity was not seamless, meaning everything one generation of Zonai did was passed on to the next. Zonai are so spread out, it's possible they experienced a generational rift. These events led to the surviving Zonai deciding to marry into other cultures. Basically, what it meant is they kind of just got absorbed into the Hylians, into the Sheikah, into the Gerudo. Probably. And they just cement, and that just kind of cements the group's extinction and the transmission of Zonai culture dramatically distinct, just diminished and basically ceased. So in terms of that kind of generational rift, um, we know that like the Rito, for example, they it was more about spoken words. So you tell the stories, you rely on the village elders. If you're running out of village elders and your population's also just super tiny, it's not as easy to transfer that information. So whoever was still around, may not have, I guess, retained all of the things the Zonai were doing when they first came to Hyrule. Because 150 years is still enough time for people to lose something along the way. But we continue. Okay, I, I know, it's, it's happening really fast, folks. The Zonai have essentially disappeared from the Hyrulean societal sphere as we're describing it. The Zonai locations are kind of becoming ruins and we're seeing the Sheikah technology beginning to really build up and flourish almost. There is one thing we have sort of glossed over when it comes to the Zonai, time. Compared to the rest of Hyrulean history, their appearance as a race is fairly short-lived. We use the placeholder of 150 years to suggest how long they were in Hyrule for, but again, it's not like this is set in zone. Even for a race that only briefly appears, 150 years is quite a short time. It's quite possible that it could have been something a bit longer, maybe 300 years, 400 years. It's impossible to know. Yeah. But we're just kind of using this placeholder just to really just kind of say, like, they came, they proliferated, and then they kind of went. Mm -hmm. Another topic we need to address is the infamous tapestry and infamous possession in current day. The artwork visually tells the myth of a thousand years ago. 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago. I can't... You're, you're trying your best. Just, apparently. Just, just breathe. When exactly were the Zonai around in relation to this defining historical event? Because obviously they were around, according to our theory, yeah. when the technology was being developed. So is 10,000 years-ish really enough time to... Well, so we'll um, get to that. We'll get to that. Like, disappear the Zonai ruins so efficiently. But we will first talk about the rise of the Hylians. So, uh, in terms of the Hylians, and that's what we're going to be covering right now, let's begin with some context. So the Zonai, um, they were around before the Divine Beasts were in material existence. 
and the divine beasts, as we know, are depicted on the tapestry. So the Zonai rise and fall is then historically positioned just before the actual myth becomes, you know, an actual thing before. More than myth, you know? Yeah. Around the time of the Zonai class is also the rise of the Hylians, you begin a gradual takeover high role in terms of geographical dominance. Because I mean, at the point of the Zonai, like the height of Zonai proliferation, you could argue that- This was already were, beginning for the Hylians as well. Yeah. But you could also argue that the Zonai, it was, this was also beginning with the Hylians, but you could also argue that the Zonai were the most respected race yeah. in Hyrule at the time, almost. And then kind of with the Zonai gone, the Hylians are free to kind of take their place as like the leading race. The focus on making the Akala Citadel look more than a lookout point, but also a potential offensive tower that wards with enemies is made clear. And at this point, since the Zonai appeared from the sea, that's how, looping back to how we said we knew the Zonai came from the south, that would be when they made sure they knew they'd be able to ward off enemies from the south, seeing as they know the enemies were able to come up that way. And again, it's not like they, like, it's not like they, as we talked about before, they might have seen the Zonai as a threat and then they were able to use charades to bridge the language gap and figure things out but it still could mean that you could have attackers from the south so yes exactly we could even theorize that the akala citadel acts as a model for shika towers which like this citadel functioned as more than just lookout points so anyways the hylians begin doing kind of what the zonai did only with much more strength influence and there's a bit more certainty as it comes to the race themselves and that they're you know, they have a larger population and they're less spread out, you know. Exactly. They're they're definitely more congregated. So this would have been after the Hylians had received some kind of sign from Hylia that the preordained hero that seals away darkness and Hylia's mortal embodiment would soon come into existence. And once again, this could also be happening while the Zonai were still dying out and not necessarily extinct. This could all be happening simultaneously. It just would be way too much to explain in like the previous parts, for example, to be like, oh yeah, so while the Sheikah were doing this and the Zonai were doing this, the Hylians were also doing this, it'd just be way too much. That's why we're I think covering People are gonna like construct it on, I think, like a graph, for example, it kind of will be like a load of overlapping lines. So yeah, you exactly. have the Zonai peak, exactly. and then as the Zonai start to fall, you see a sudden spike in both Sheikah technology activities and the influence of Hylians, basically. So this is this is to say that the Hylians were beginning to expand um, as a group in Hyrule while the Zonai were still around, um, and kind of began influencing and negotiating with other groups as the Zonai were falling. Early connections with the Risho, Gerudo, Zora, and Gorons have been kind of formed over time and are becoming a bit more concrete, and a more structured Hylian society begins to form. So over time, it is likely that the family with potential demigod status would have already been identified because, I don't know, they would have received a sign somehow, which would mean that the Hylians had See, a leader. a vision, possibly. Yeah, they would have, uh, the Hylians had, um, probably a leader resembling a king. They would have had someone to lead them and they were already- Or a queen. Possibly. Yeah, or a queen. They were probably stratifying their society. The women are very important in the royal family, so it could go either way, king or queen. So the Hylians decide to relocate from the Great Plateau and head towards the heart of central Hyrule. So obviously this would have taken a lot of time. And we, so for like all this to happen, for them to build up their, uh, uh, like 
relationships with the other groups to have the families that would become the that would the vessel for Hylia would be born into like this would have taken quite a long time yes and in probably enough time that as the land shifted and wild scale building occurred across Hyrule the Zonai temple area may have already been much lower and thus easy to build on top of because if you think about Hyrule Castle right mm-hmm. you have Hyrule Castle and it's on top of this big rock and there's a moat and it's, yeah. it's a very it's a very circular moat I have to say yes. which is kind of odd because you know it, it's too uniform to be natural and you also have all these caverns inside and again we were talking about the shrine in Hyrule Castle that's also underneath the castle so and, and even that part I wouldn't even say is the deepest part of Hyrule Castle no itself. definitely think of the ancient columns I know that's not that obviously that Sheikah text probably also being built at some point but if you think about the ancient columns which are kind of these gigantic like caches for guardians to be stored in to protect the people there um you don't they like rise the out of the ground emerge from there's one column that's like actually beyond the moat so it's you have to think about how those columns were built it. how they were placed and where they are in respect to the castle that the exactly. i guess the areas of the columns themselves would have also had to be in much deeper underground I mean, which they then suggests are, that something could be lower yeah they are like on the cliffs surrounding the castle but like diagonally straight up like diagonally pointing towards the castle they are almost the height of the castle exactly if you think about how deep they would have to be buried in the ground it's highly likely there could also be something under this so having this if the zonai temple was already quite low in the ground it would have been really easy to build over on top of because if you think about it it's a really advantageous location if the zonai already got well then that land's free picking exactly and they kind of recognize an area to be advantageous for their group and they decide this land to be the new hylian castle namely the huge expanse of the castle and then castle town as a societal hierarchy becomes more defined throughout through hylian's influence and the myth we see the monarchy established well in advance before the event that would be known as the Great Calamity, as well as Hyrule Castle. So this means that the princess's family is now in existence, so the events of the myth are actually closing in on the Hyruleans. It's going to become history as opposed to just being a myth. As the guidebook states, all daughters born to the royal family are named Zelda, so the first Zelda would have been born at some point. Around the same time, the boy destined to be the hero, whether or not he was a Hylian, was also born at this time. So it was. It's kind of like Hyrule is gradually preparing itself for the myth of ten thousand years ago. We're actually gonna. We're basically reviewing that event as if it really happened, or that we know that it happened, right? Right. So the shrines, divine beasts, guardian screens, and towers are finally complete in their development and building, just as they were in pre-Calamity Hyrule in the game. The champions of each respective race were chosen to be pilots of the divine beasts. Each champion aware of their role to aid the hero. Unlike what we see in the game, things went as planned as the myth dictates. Just gonna break my point here a bit to say that um, Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity is coming out and we're gonna, well, I'm gonna play that game and I'm gonna cry. Well, I made a whole extra about it, talking about how excited I was. I, I, I It's gonna be I just big. Know, I just know that we're gonna get to the end and that all the champions are gonna die and I'm gonna start crying. Yeah, like, I saw I saw one happen. meme that was like uh, talking about the age of calamity, and it's like uh, that moment when you realize you can 
uh, play through the beginning of the calamity and meet all these characters that you love. And then the second half is like, but then you realize they're all gonna die. <laughs> and I was like- Yeah, that's gonna be such a fun yeah, that's anyway, a fair off point. Anyway, <laughs> off topic. We have no way of knowing whether or not there were issues in this united front. Though there is one discrepancy and AR will discuss that in a bit. The pilots were stationed at the Divine Beast, the Sheikah aides figured out when to roughly predict Calamity Ganon's revival, and Zelda and the hero already. It played out pretty much as the bits of 10,000 years ago dictates. The battlefield would have been the same as in the game, which is perfect, purposefully undeveloped, so there's nothing for big old boar-headed Ganon over here to destroy. Uh, most Hyrulean areas were far enough away, and the necessary weapons, i.e. the Divine Beast, were in place to keep Ganon confirmed confined to central Hyrule because you know the last thing you want when you're beginning to see prosperity is have a giant malice made of bo- giant rage filled bull made of malice galloping through your country that's not good that's not for ideal. progress generally so I would like to talk about uh, that discrepancy now so in the memory link recovers on the Lanevu promenade which is the memory of uh, Zelda returning from the Spring of Wisdom. She hasn't tarnished her powers and all the champions are there with her trying to reassure her that it's okay. And it is during that time that everyone there sees while they're talking that Calamity Ganon has spawned and emerged um, from his demon pig dimension or wherever he comes from right above Hyrule Castle. Remember, what happens in the game was not actually meant to happen because if this is how the myth of 10,000 years ago played out, um, this is not everyone the plan. Everyone would be dead. Everyone was surprised, like, like, you know, Link, Zelda, and the champions were all like, holy crap, Ganon's already here. We, we have to really get in position now. Um, it is possible that Ganon actually appeared elsewhere at the time of the myth, meaning that maybe he didn't spawn where Hyrule Castle is. Maybe he was somewhere else. So, I don't know if you remember, but there's a set of Hylian ruins known as the Forgotten Temple at this location called the Hebra Peak. And it's in this, again, deep, deep canyon. Deep canyon. It's not fun. fun. It's not fun. There's so many guardians. Oh my god. So, the guidebook says this place is a physical reminder of the events of 10,000 years ago. Meaning this area was most, was, uh, sorry, was affected by Ganon's arrival. One of Calamity Ganon's abilities, if you will, is this kind of attack order that allows monsters to thrive while he's around and become more powerful. So you just see monsters kind of everywhere and wreaking havoc, and it's thanks to his presence. Enemies become stronger when he's around. So it's very possible that the monsters attack the Hylians residing at this temple. The guidebook explains the meaning of this location. Quote, The Forgotten Temple was constructed in order to keep a record of the heroes throughout history who aided the royal family of Hyrule in the countless ancient battles against Ganon, who unleashed the calamity on a recovering world, end quote. This is a humongous find because this tells us many things at once. The Hylians intended to keep an extensive record of the heroes, but the record was destroyed when Ganon attacked 10,000 years ago. Hyrule has experienced previous links and Zeldas, if you will, but that ancient history becomes lost as this temple was destroyed. The guardian stationed in the temple, there's 12, the guardian stationed in the temple did in fact function as protectors, but were not damaged in any way when this area was affected by Ganon's attack. So they survived the test of time essentially, and that's why they are attacking you now in the game, because he was still able to infect them with malice. Lastly, and most importantly- the calamity, not 10,000 years ago. Just, yes. to be clar- yeah, just yeah. for clarity, because that's kind of confusing. Lastly, and most importantly, this event, 
in uh, 10,000 years ago is new to Hyrule. We know that Ganon was attacking Hyrule before the Zonai arrived, and we know his calamity form actually heralded a new version of this historically faded threat of this pig coming to ruin Hyrule, and you needed the hero and the princess to save everyone. So this means Hyrule was prepared for Calamity Ganon, in a sense, but could not account for everything he did before he was sealed away. This older Hyrule still experienced human loss, but not to the same degree as we see in current day Hyrule. I mean, actually, it's hard to, it's actually hard to experience human loss to the same degree we see in current day Hyrule. Like, current day Hyrule is properly, If like, you look destroyed. in the guidebook, there is a literal, like, there is a, like, side-by-side comparison of Hyrule population in pre-Calamity Hyrule and Hylian population now. And it is, it's just like, they use, like, kind of this, like, yellow kind of circling feature, so it's like, if there's like this yellow colored area, it's like there's Hylians there, Hylians there, Hylians there. It's like tiny yellow dots now. That's how little there is left. It's, and like it's Hyrule Town because like we said before, Hyrule Town was the center of the civilization. Castle and Town is problem, where everyone came to. Everyone. Like, and the problem with that, because the Zarnai were far too spread out as you said, and the Hyrule and Hylian so much more secure because they had Castletown as that center. But the problem was that when Castletown was destroyed, it absolutely decimated the population utterly yeah. and completely. Yes. But to get back on track again, other ancient columns found across Hyrule, notably the Tabantha Frontier, suggest that there were other locations also affected by Calamity Gannon's initial arrival before the big battle. Despite what destruction occurred, the first Zelda and the first hero with the help of the pilot, successfully defeated Calamity Ganon and sealed him away. We haven't talked about the Zonai all this time, so you might be wondering how they fit into all this. The answer is simple. Depending on who various Zonai were married to, they would have been at home in a town or village some ways away from the battlefield. Like many citizens at the time, they would have known it was going to happen without knowing all the specifics, and also would not have witnessed the event itself. This brings us to the tapestry. Sometime after the battle transpired, the Sheikah experienced the Sheikah split that we've talked about previously, where they split into the Sheikah and the Yiga, since we know that the Sheikah technology had been advancing rapidly. The tapestry is made sometime after the battle, and also sometime after the split, as it depicts it on the tapestry. I mean, but it's also, if you can consider, like, when artwork is copied over time, not all parts of certain events are depicted immediately after. It might have been like a later edition. So it might even and be also, possible you know, that the Sheikah, the Sheikah split being depicted on the tapestry wasn't even on the original tapestry. Yeah, but also, you also we also have to consider the fact that tapestries take a flippin' long time to weave. A good example of this would be the, um, the, uh, the uh, tapestry that was constructed after William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066. That was actually uh, created like 20, 30 years after the actual event because A, it wasn't conceptualized and like made straight after the battle. And B, tapestries just take a long time to make, especially long as one as the Bayo tapestry or as big as the one we see in the game. But the the tapestry, so we know that the tapestry is made sometime possibly quite a while after the battle, 
So definitely not immediately after it happened. Right. We need to ask these questions. Were the Sheikah the sole possessors of this tapestry? Because obviously it's hanging up in Impa's room in Kakariko village. So that would be like, like so we've not got to know. Were the Sheikah the only people who made the tapestry and owned the tapestry and who contributed to this imagery? So after all this kind of theorizing, we don't think the answer to such questions are that simple. We need to analyze the tapestry on closer inspection. It'll be linked in the description, so if you're not really familiar with the imagery, you can look at it as we talk. So let's look first at how the hero is designed on the tapestry. The hero has red hair and is colored in green swirls, while also holding a sword that doesn't exactly look like the master sword as we know it. I would say that the green swirls are quite similar to those seen in the Breath of the Wild 2 trailer, but obviously yes. as that's just trailer footage, we're not gonna we're not gonna add it into our theory here because it's not concrete and final and canon yet, obviously. Right. We don't think the hero was Zonai because the Zonai were all extinct by this point, or either the, the, as a culture they were extinct at this right. point. So, but there's a good chance the artist behind this tapestry was influenced by the Zonai in some way. If you look at the tapestry, a lot of the art, the art style is a lot of straight lines and concentric squares and circles, which yes. again looks very similar to the Zonai art style of that spiraling squares it's and circles. It's more of this imaginative right? style as opposed to a realist style. Exactly. Um, tapestries, like I've said, take a really long time to make. So the Zonites that were around during that battle probably transmitted the story of that event to their offspring, who would have been mixed as a cult, as in terms of both like heritage, heritage, and cultural influence, right? Yes. Because as while the Zonai are dead as a culture, I can't imagine that the Zonai remained wouldn't tell their children of the Zonai culture at all. That seems unlikely. Highly unlikely. That is. And all of this is to say that the artist was drawing out the tapestry based on hearsay and partial cultural influence. By the time it was finished, it's unlikely that they would have gotten any first-hand accounts of the battle itself. Yeah. So, basically, they were drawing out, they were making this tapestry based on rumors, word of mouth, and partial cultural influences from all different races of Hyrule. The appearance of the Master Sword is also then easy to explain because if the hero isn't depicted accurately, then of course the sword isn't going to be either. And if you're not using first-hand accounts, then of course the sword is going to be done incorrectly because you don't have any witness accounts to be able to draw it in the first place. So the reason we can say this about the hero and still justify why the, the first Zelda, if you will, appears exactly as current day Zelda is because the Hylian custom of dressing the princess in the goddess's clothing is actually quite well known. As we see her in the game, Zelda wears this kind of white dress with the this kind of like uh, um, like gold waist like a waistband and things like that as she travels to the springs because she needs to wear kind of the goddess's clothing to harness the power of the goddess. So when she's going to the springs, that's what she's wearing. Though we don't see this in the captured memories, this can be inferred. She you know she had a, probably an entourage of soldiers that traveled with her to kind of ensure her safety as she's going around Hyrule. Um, though Link, being her personally assigned knight, would have been the only one to actually see her 
be like perform these rites in the springs. This still means though that the princess as a figure was visible and known because there were other people to see her in this outfit. So the first Zelda is accurate because people know her appearance. Her role is just as preordained as the heroes, but when you're part of the monarchy, there's a better chance that that record will be kept well and people will know that this is a fact because they're so highly publicized. These are very public figures, so that's a thing. The Forgotten Temple might be able to explain this design chance or choice or whatever, but we have no way of knowing that information and thus the appearance of the hero is much more vague. It's actually really hard to tell in the image if the, like, the hero is actually being depicted with red hair, or if you look at the barbarian armor, the back of it is actually covered in like a red mane of sorts, so it's hard to tell whether they're wearing armor similar to maybe the barbarian armor or they are just red-haired. Mm. Like, it's much harder to tell. And if we look at the center of the tapestry, there's some details we can observe. We're not including the borders in this analysis, and we will get to that. Um, kind of touched on it before, which is that it might have been like, the, the borders of the tapestry might have been added later just because the events on the, on the borders appear more recent than the calamity itself. So that is a thing. So if we look at the center, you will notice Gen, the hero, and Zelda all have these like uh, very lucid spur-like forms, concentric circles, as Aaron mentioned. Um, nothing on this tapestry appears in a concrete form. Rather, they appear kind of similar to the Egyptian canon. So if you look this up, the Egyptian canon is a distinct art style that showcases the side profile of a given person, but also unrealistically includes all body parts. So though the hero and Zelda's figures don't seem to show all of their body parts, Ganon's actually, like, he, like his does. So to some degree, the art style reflects a more mythical tone rather than this historical tone in its visual storytelling. The Zonai being an ancient race and also using these swirl patterns, we know that very well, seem to be the best contenders um, for the role of some of the artists or at least influences behind the tapestry. So at the very least, the artistic collective behind this tapestry, because it'd be unrealistic to assume that it was one person. You probably had a lot of people working on this. The artistic collective behind this tapestry were probably influenced by Zonai styles. So to sum up, what do we have so far? A very lucid art style that implies Zonai influence based on the appearance of the hero, Zelda, and Ganon. The Master Sword does not appear in the form that we know of, uh, but that can be explained by um, the like the like the retelling and right. not like the word of mouth. The like, tradition explained yeah. exactly. But another possibility is the experience, the appearance of these characters could also be like a limited color palette. Like if you think about where we are in time and like even in modern day Hyrule. Like, dyes are expensive, and you're not gonna have the material to make brightly colored dyes in every color you want. Right. So, you know, to save, possibly to save money, the tapestry doesn't appear that concrete for that reason. Like, the Master Sword could be off because that particular shade of blue was really hard to find, really expensive to make, because the tapestry- there's, there's no silver, went... I don't think, on the tapestry either. Yeah. That kind of shade of gray isn't on there either. So. Yeah, so the tapestry maker simply could have gone it's fine, it's too expensive, we'll just make it a different color. Green that is fine! Green, Green is fine! Is fine. 
Like they could have, they could have not had the money for that silver third, or maybe that color simply doesn't exist. They yeah. just went, screw it, we'll go with green. It's close enough. So they could have not appear concrete for that reason. But we're gonna make a radical claim here now, which is surprising. Talking about the fact that we've had radical claims for doing this all we've been doing. Time, this, this entire this, time. this entire thing is radical claims, but yeah. a radical claim on top of all those other radical claims. We know that the tapestry is a visual history, historical source, not a written one. Mm-hmm. And as we know through cast, knowledge of the event mostly exists through song. Because, you know, the two times you are shown the tapestry is once when Impa is telling, narrating the story to you, and another when Cass sings it to you again. That's the two times you see this tapestry. Also, I believe in the, King, in the, game. I believe in the tutorial phase in, in the game, King yeah. Doom, I think, also has a bit. But yeah, that's when you get bit, like the but it's full, not quite... you see the full image in close on close inspection. That's when you see the tapestry really in the game. Right. But like the two, the two that you can like revisit and talk to again, yes. like the most explained ones are both through Cass and, sh- and Imba, and, who and, and, both have a history of oral tradition. If song and art determine how a battle is retold, it's also piss- possible that the myth of 10,000 years ago was it not 10,000 years ago. Due to oral tradition determining how the battle unfolded, details such as the event's position in history would also be impacted. So, if you think about it, right? So, if you have, let's say you have a dad talking to his kid, saying, "So I'm going to tell you the event of 10,000 years ago," and then his kid tells his child when he has children, "I'm going to tell you the event of 10,000 years ago," and then throughout the next hundred years, it stays as 10,000 years ago because. Like it just kind of goes. It's a down very notable like, number. It's a big number as well. So that like, kind of stay. And it's like it's impossible to know how many times it would pass down. And it'd be really easy to think like I don't need to add any more years because for my dad it was ten thousand years ago. For for us it's practically ten thousand years ago. And then you could have another ten thousand years pass, and it could be the myth of twenty thousand years ago, and nobody would know. The, the, so the thing is that what's interesting is the number sticks, but the events and how they play out could have just been completely changed over time, interpreted, that kind of thing. So the number would stick, but for some reason we don't question that. So we are questioning that. This is what we're doing here. We're questioning the events themselves and this number. We are not necessarily trusting this number. So analyzing the tapestry with knowledge about the existence of the Zonai and the evolution of Hyrule, it kind of introduces all of these ideas. Namely that temporally, the Zonai will always be difficult to place, but do have their time to shine in the history of Hyrule. So it's like we have all these vague ideas and stuff in terms of what actually yeah. happened and whether 10,000 is a, a relevant number or that is, or you can even strongly argue for that if it's a number based on hearsay really. but. The Zonai appear before that myth, you know? Yeah. Basically, what we're trying to say through that long-winded um, thing is basically that because the tapestry is not actually written down, it's just images, and the story of it is passed down through oral tradition, it's impossible to know how much it has changed over time. Like, it's impossible to know what has been edited for um, effect, like that's and like it's that's a real danger with like oral traditions all over the world. You find that not like if you've ever played the game Chinese Whispers, you know how stuff can change when it's being passed from person to person. 
But the Sheikh was also hardest tapestry in their possession in the modern day because whenever this tapestry was constructed, the Sheikh would have maintained ownership and responsibility over it, even if they weren't the sole owners and or creators of it. So if we take that into consideration, the borders around, as I've mentioned before, the borders around the tapestry, um, they might not have even been on the original one. The Yiga clan is depicted, so it is maybe possible that the tapestry experienced revisions over time, because let's consider that things also played out in the aftermath of the calamity fairly well, in that um, after the Ganon was dealt with, maybe the king at the time wouldn't have been paranoid and wouldn't have been mandating that the Sheikah have to stop building Sheikah tech because he was scared of how strong they were becoming. If that hadn't happened and the Sheikah tech was allowed to be um, developed a whole lot more, the Yiga, like, the Yiga clan might not have even existed because a big reason for the Yiga clan existing was just that they felt undermined by the monarchy and they felt that like, you know, kind of allow us to thrive as a group, let us do our thing, but then kind of turn violent. So it, it the, the tapestry we see in the game might not even be, for the sake of argument, the original copy. Yeah, or it's possible that it is the original copy, but it'd be very easy to like add extra material and then mm -hmm. sew that on. And this analysis of the tapestry reveals that even while after the Zonai have become extinct, their influence remains through the art style. Which brings our final topic on the Zonai in this series to a head here and now. The efforts made by the Zonai as they were dying out, as well as this post-Thumos influence on the tapestry are signs of the legacy the Zonai left behind. Zonai did not simply appear and disappear as this series has revealed, but even if a part of this meta theory proves to be true, the Zonai did quite a bit despite their short stay. I mean, the reason we're even talking about them now is because we know about them, that they existed even however many years later in modern day Hyrule playing through the game. Exactly. The Gerudo and Rito were definitely influenced by the Zonai in some way, as their cultural values reflect the Zonai on these kind of subtle uh, levels. The Gerudo don't utilize much armor like the Zonai did when it comes to combat. Like that might have even be, been transferred. It might even be possible that the Gerudo had maybe more um, like like proper armor. The Zonai come around, maybe they kind of change their combat style, you know? And the Rito and the Zonai have these shared geometric styles. I, I don't think that's an accident. So as this series has kind of revealed, the Sheikah have, I think, retained Zonai influence the most. As the location of shrines in Zonai locations suggests, the Barbarian armor set was probably given to the Sheikah before the Zonai like full on died out as a group. So the Sheikah could use those as prizes for completing the labyrinth puzzles, but the Sheikah had their own way of interpreting how the hero would acquire that outfit. So that's why you have one piece at each labyrinth but still maintaining the essence of the original plan for the, labyr the labyrinths, which is that, yes, the hero or whoever's, uh, whoever's being tested has to navigate through this puzzle, battle enemies, and get to the end point in order to receive the armor. Uh, though we didn't really go into like the most detail on this, I would say the Zonai didn't just have dragon imagery, which is associated with courage, but they also had boar and owl imagery. Like you can find throughout Farron, there's like these bird statues um, and things like that. 
the boar represents power, and the owl represents- And Ganon. Uh, well, yeah, the boar, sorry, the boar represents power, and the owl represents wisdom. So, the zone I had to know about the myth, and they immortalized their knowledge of kind of the legend of our fated trio through these animal symbols. That's a big thing. It's not an accident that we see these animal symbols directly referring to the myth, and these are the an and these are the animals we associate with each of the characters as well. Because King Rome, his crown actually like uh, the uh, Hylian crest is winged, like that's an intentional motif. So even the royal family has this connection with owl imagery. So and wisdom and like that's why Zelda's the owl connection to Zelda isn't just some random connection. Yeah. But the Zone I were also the only group we think had any major interactions with the Koroks, possibly ever. Mm -hmm. So, and it, that led obviously to the creation of Tipolo. The fact that Tipolo runes are still shrouded in darkness probably is due part to the fact that the Zonai aren't around anymore. And they were probably the only ones who know how to turn it off, other than possibly the Koroks, but I, and obviously they're not going to be exposing that anytime soon. So, you can never really truly know the secrets of that Sargent city. Tribes we have mentioned across this series still retain the Zonai style, and we see you still see their great structures, despite not much being left behind. If the sequel teaser possesses a kernel of truth to it, it would also be impressive to see a Zonai temple located under Hyrule Castle. And obviously, along with that, um, be, it would lead to more interesting things. If, if all the trailer footage is kept, it would lead to more interesting musings around how the Zonai um, were connected to um, the Gerudo, for example, or the hero, seeing as like the green swirls uh, that form Gerudo-ish characters in the trailer footage. And there Could are- really interesting, right? In, in the right? trailer footage as well, there is a shot where um, there is like a torch lighting up the wall and you see this kind of uh, imagery of people on horses and shooting arrows and bows and having all these different kinds of weapons and they're on horseback so it looks like it's depicting this uh great kind of battle so maybe the zone i saw an event that we haven't really described in the tone the timeline maybe there was some kind of conflict you know that kind of thing but it there's a, like a lot going on in this temple so it would be cool if that was actually there um it, it was kept yeah it was it, that would be really cool to see and this is a side quest but obviously it's just a teaser, so we can't really properly theorize about any of it because it's not confirmed yet. So this is a side quest I, I like mentioned before, where um, the player as Link can involve themselves in the construction of a new Hylian town known as Terrytown. The requirements and objectives detailed in this quest require a, a Rito, Gerudo, Goron, and Zora in order to bring the society together. So though this isn't exactly like the Zonai, this kind of cultural behavioral dynamic is still very similar, which is bringing parts of Hyrule together in one place to create harmony. That's kind of what they did. Having the Zonai working with the Sheikah and the development of the Divine Beasts is our, our personal example of that, which is that all these races kind of came together to work, they, they work together, you know? We don't think that the Zonai areas were ruined due to intentional destruction. If a structure is not maintained over time, it'll naturally decay, which is what has happened to all the Zonai locations. And I mean, if you think about it, right, 
it is if it is 10,000 years like it's only been two it's only been 2000 years since it since like the downfall of the romans actually less than that it's only been like 1600 years since the downfall of the romans and their ruins are still decayed and pretty much like really Now, like with the with the similar way with the romans so, for example we do know for a fact that they like the colosseum for example uh was there were fires a lot there was destruction and looting and things like that so we know in certain cases for structures that we see in our real world there were uh causes for why we don't have the entire structure but we actually do see like a lot of these kinds of relics around the world that we see these structures are there's still a lot of them that we know exists they're still there they still exist so that's why in that same vein the we can still see zonai ruins and from i guess the game and it's like, impossible to know how long any of those structures could survive if no one actually meddled with them in that same way yeah and so. but the thing is that also if you consider the fact that um monsters do still exist in this game if we know that farren has no other uh, uh settlements outside of Lorelin village so and Lorelin village isn't even in the forest it's on the coast so if you consider the fact that farren basically becomes uninhabited after the zonai have died out and have probably moved from farren because whoever they marry into are probably living elsewhere in hyrule then monsters we know also do still exist monsters become stronger under the influence of ganon and that's why in current day hyrule as we see them they're still there because ganon retains his influence and control over hyrule like he's in affected basically everything which is why monsters are rampant everywhere but to a slightly lesser degree uh, to a lesser degree in this timeline we've constructed monsters also could have just wrecked the place because we see them there now and yeah. mon- the monsters are smart enough in this game to be capable of doing things like that so like they have their own like they have their own camps too like they build their own things too so even the monsters in this game could have had some uh impact on um zone locations for example regardless of how long ago it was the stay of the zone was impactful and even if current day hyrule does not reflect that we think there's much more to the zone than meets the eye here which I is think, what this entire series has been about yeah and this i i mean this was a lot of fun actually because since that epiphany about uh the divine beast when it came you know like von boris and then it was like an oh my god moment we just had to take a step back and think so the shika um were the kind of architects of this of all the shika tech and things like that but what if other races had to contribute to that and then by extension what if I the think, zonai had a way to contribute to that yeah. it's all in a very interesting thought process i think so i like as we've said like the big tipping point was real i like reading the guidebook and then realizing hang on a second how have this divine beast been created in the form of animals that don't even exist in hyrule when as far as we know none of these races have ever left hyrule ever yeah how does that work um i mean this is a bit of a wild theory because this is also like something that just came to mind maybe the rito also um i mean they're birds right you know how past hebra there's that gigantic kind of canyon we talked about that's impassable in the game you can't go yeah. what if they flew it's possible they could have flown from there yeah 
I mean, um, obviously that's possible, but... And considering like their, their village isn't, like, the most sturdily constructed, if you think about it. I mean, that was just an idea, too. So it's, like, it's even possible that... was an that- idea we had. We kind of fell down on the idea of the Zonai creating them, because, like, as we've stated, yeah. the re- the records of the Rito are really bad, and they don't live very long, so the... the um, the idea of them coming here from somewhere else and then still remembering what an elephant and a camel look like however many years later because as we've said by the time these divine beasts are constructed they're already a really well-established race so yes. the idea of them constructing uh, the idea of them coming here and then remembering what an elephant and a camel look like just isn't as likely as it is for the zonai doing the same thing and obviously, like, Zonite, like, if they did come from across Hebra, they would be coming from somewhere much further north. And obviously, elephants and camels much prefer much warmer climates, which is much more likely to be southern I'm anyway. I'm just saying, so as, like, overall, as, kind of I just mean sense. as, like, a general point for the Rito is that they yeah. also might have been an outsider race, considering that they are birds, they can fly. But yeah. that was just more like a point to um, the fact that the Zonai might not have been the only group in Hyrule to have come from somewhere else. But they are the group that I believe the strongest in that they came from somewhere else. Like, I, the other groups, it's a little bit hard to argue for. And even arguing that the Rito came from somewhere else because they flew would have, yeah, flying over that, like, that kind of stretch of that canyon would be kind of taxing, no? Like, even for, I mean, birds can yeah. for a long time, but still. You'd have to assume that everyone flying from that, from the Rito, were good flyers. And that's, you can't assume that of, of like, a young Rito, for example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the zone I think made us really reconsider a lot of the imagery that we see in the games. And even like actually, I, I think a zo- the Zonite made us reconsider a lot of our opinions and assumptions on this game period. Oh, like yeah. before doing the Zonai, it never really occurred because we were trying to work out like the timelining problem. And then I actually thought, like, hang on a sec, why are you just taking as gospel the fact that? the myth of 10,000 years ago happened 10,000 years ago and exactly as depicted like why why are we taking this game's objective truth like uh, the things they say in the game as objective truth it's just not because seeing it from the perspective of Link it's just not possible to find that truth in game there's no overriding authority where we can see like records of this this and this it's all just speculative and oral tradition so the thing also is that in the guidebook itself on the page describing the zonai it's not a very extensively detailed page only that they're a mysterious race that once lived in hyrule and even the developers notes there are super like dancing around the fact and they know it's really bugging us that we don't know about the zonai they even laugh they even put a little laugh in brackets like they're messing with us on purpose, part of the yeah. root word for zonai itself i i actually mean mysterious mis- yeah mysterious in japanese so if that was an intentional choice in terms of how they named the group but also if that's how the developers were um deciding to convey this information in the guidebook itself when i mentioned the forgotten temple and they said oh this is the ruins from 10,000 years ago, if we know that the the developers are intentionally leaving some details out for us, because they could have given us more detail about the Zonai. I think they purposely chose not to because that would that would compromise the mystery surrounding the Zonai, um, which is fair. I totally understand that decision. But if they remain mysterious about a group like that and they don't explain that much 
it's not you don't really get a more drawn out explanation about the zonai than what we see in the game or what you seek out for yourself as the player but if we know that that's how they decide to describe the zonai then the number of 10,000 years ago could also be a debated uh number because right uh if we know that they're being tongue-in-cheek about those kinds of things then it's like well you can't you can't argue necessarily. You can't trust anything. You can't trust anything. That's the thing we've learned with the guidebook is that it's been a really great source in helping us build this theory up, for example, and all the other theories we've had and discussed. Um, but it's not like we take you everything take from everything there everything as gospel as well. Salt. Exactly. I think that's also what the Zonai kind of taught us as well, is that if we're constructing this whole theory and narrative... Like, we're taking, we're kind of taking everything said in the game as like the gospel truth, but then we're like, Hang on, then we just kind of had this moment where we were like, hang on, why are we assuming that all these things said in the game is automatically true? Sure, it may be true for the perspective of these people, but they weren't around 10,000 years ago. Like, and it doesn't make sense that this is true, but this fact is also true. And, and one of the things they, also is that each cultural investigations episode we've had was that, um, we wanted to really flesh out how well-developed all the groups we see in Hyrule are. The Zora, the, the Rito, the Gorons, the Gerudo, um, the Sheikah and Hylians, we didn't really necessarily give an episode to, but they're so involved with everything in Hyrule that you don't really need to. All of these groups feel very real, and they have a history to each of them, however short or long those histories are. So it feels like in that vein, the zone I have to play into that scheme somehow. And that's why when like, we it was take, very when, weird that's why we that they take felt things. so underdeveloped compared to the other races. That that's the thing, right? So then it then this idea of taking the information that we get from the game and the guidebook with a grain of salt comes from the fact that if we have these very developed ideas and facts around these groups, then there has to be certain things we can question, right? It's not like we can take all of this as fact. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been very interesting uh, reviewing the Zonai. It's been a lot of fun. I can't believe we're basic. We're, we're at the end of the Zonai. This is the end. We're done. The Zonai, we're done. Are, Zonai are dead. Um, With the and, last, and this last sentence we speak now, and then we're done. So, this was the Lore Research Lab's findings on what led to the Zonai's downfall and their cultural legacy from The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Thank you all very much for tuning into this theory-heavy series, folks. Could not be more grateful, and I'm very surprised if any of you truly made it to the end, like from parts one through like, like this is nine, so parts one through nine. If you made it here, I am super impressed. Yeah. I know I, for one, would not want to sit through all our I would not either. No, not at all. No. But we'll see you next time in, in season two. Two. Why did you say two after me? I'm sorry. There was no reason for that. We were so close. But just as a, a quick concluding note here, and you're going to get a bit more information on this. Uh, this is the end of season one. So... Uh, we've done a lot of, like, talking about Breath of the Wild, and you might be a bit sick of it at this point. We kind of are too! I'm good! We're a good bit sick of it too, and that's why this is so exciting. We're gonna kind of move away from Legend of Zelda as a whole and talk about something, like, a different series, like Pokemon, maybe, or Mario. 
yeah. as examples. So um, I'm probably going to add I have in... a game I'm playing right now. I'm keeping in reserve for a theory that I really am like, really excited Don't tell to them cover, the game. Don't tell them the I'm game. Not, but... no, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying you can be excited for that in season two. We're going to have think... lots of new content, I think. Like more things yeah. to talk about in terms of games because we're not I'm just like... focusing on one game. Yeah, so season two is definitely not just going to be like about one single game. We'll probably have, we might like, episode one might be Mario, episode two might be Pokemon. It'll but, be fairly um, non-linear and uh, yeah. there's going to be a lot to look forward to. I'm really excited. For, there's um, going to be all for, kinds of Like how much season one has been really linear. I'm yes. quite excited to do something that's a bit more unconnected, you know? I'm looking forward to it. I'm really it's excited free to share. It, with you guys so yeah we have a lot in again. store i'm thinking of adding maybe reviews so we do reviews of games and not just strictly doing a lot of talking about the game so it's like if you're interested in a game we'd also be happy to review stuff you so can that listen to us rant about games it is gonna be it's gonna be lots of fun so again we'll see you, you next time folks in season two. Season two. Thanks for thanks for coming around. Uh, well, we're gonna be on a break a little bit because it's gonna be some time before season two content actually gets up. But thank you for all being here. Woo! Yay! Thank you so much, and we're really excited to start this new journey with you guys. Thank you. Hope to see you there. See you soon, guys. Around. See you soon, folks. <laughs>